Hello, everybody. I'm Josie Long, and you're listening to Robin Ince and Josie's Book Shambles, episode four. Or perhaps another episode, depending on when we put it out. Might be episode five. Yes. Could even be episode three. Yes. Hello, I'm Robin, and we're joined by uh, the, uh, is it hardline communist agitator, Owen Jones? I, I can't remember what you, how do you, because I mean, obviously you're, uh, we're joined by the writer and broadcaster. Cultural Marxist. That's <laughs> it, yeah. Unhinged, prepubescent, commie <laughs> scumbag, I think, as my mum describes me. Hey. So. We're joined by the child-faced lunatic, Owen Jones. <laughs> Top friend uh, and... <laughs> And moderate, reasonable commentator, Owen Jones. The person who, when you're watching a political show, will say a thing and you'll go, oh, thank God, oh, thank God, because somebody is actually not raving on it. No, um, sometimes they do go. I, I've seen his, uh, the, what they say on Twitter. It's uh, it's quite an interesting. What was it you were saying? Like, I read an article you wrote last year where the way that you're normally introduced... Uh, there's something about... Uh, well, well, this is what is they... Is left-wing activists? Oh, no, firebrand, what's that all about? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I've got my moments, but it's just, you know, like Tim Montgomery, he writes for The Times. Yeah. Right, he's a conservative activist. Nothing wrong with him, although he wants... Accuse me of supporting infanticide because I support the law on abortion. Uh, but that park that. But no one ever says he's a right wing firebrand, do they? They don't go right wing firebrand Tim Montgomery. Yeah, they just say, say Times, terribly nice chap. Yeah, yeah. Respectable Times columnist Tim Montgomery. But I had that when I did Have I Got News for You. They introduced me by going, like, she hates Tories, so she'll hate half the people here. And I was like, great, great stuff. Brilliant. Thanks for the. Feel, feel great so happy intro. about this. Is, was it the most frightening experience you've ever had in your entire life ever? Because it looks pretty scary. Because no, once I nearly died in a car crash and other times I've been on aeroplanes where I've not been in control at all and there's been loads of turbulence. Um, Alright, that's put that in it was, perspective. Yeah, it was, it was a really frightening experience in terms of uh, performance. Definitely, point? I did not feel comfortable. Doing Have I Got News For You, what was the equivalent of all the logs rolling towards the car as actually <laughs> happened in your accident? So was there a moment where you went, Jacob Rees-Mogg has now turned into a series of logs rolling <laughs> towards me? Well, there was a bit during the accident where I just shut my eyes and I was like, you're going to die, so just lie still. Because quite often I have dreams where I'm shot, and in those dreams I just go, look, you're going to die, so just lie still. When was it? This is so bleak. I thought we were going to have this cheery, <laughs> upbeat chat about books, but we're talking about right. your near death. No, right, no but right. that's Let's why it's not bleak. Books. What a happy story, right? She had a proper comedian slapstick car accident mm. in right. which every time you went, well, thank heavens, that bit's over. Whoa, here come the logs! <laughs> and she survived. It's a survivor's story. Happen? Five years ago. Well, I'll tell you later because I, I have told it a few times I, on various on things and okay. I feel like people will be like, we get it. And I'll be like, fair enough. Um, Blimey. We, we are here today to talk about uh, fiction, literature, non-fiction. Books, All of the books. All, All of the different of the books, kinds. Any books you like, we're here to chat about them. And we're very lucky to have you here because you have written two books. Half-baked gibberish, which for some reason Penguin have decided to publish. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. They'll publish anything these days. Um, that's not true at all. I, um, you know, before you wrote your first book, how long was the genesis of it? And did you always think when you were younger, like, I would really like to make these ideas into a book? Like, how did it become that you published it? No, because way? I think writing a book is the most horrific, excruciating experience imaginable. I mean, probably not nearly dying in car crashes, but it's still it's still pretty tedious to go through it, which is a bit unfortunate because that is what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? As a, as a sort of occupation. <laughs> uh, so I've chosen the wrong one. Yeah, no, I always had like my beliefs in that. I always wanted to 
or fight to change the world. No, I wanted, you know, I wanted to, I wanted, I had, you know, my family background is one where, you know, I wasn't brainwashed or anything. In fact, my parents had given up on politics, and the last thing they wanted me to do is to get involved in politics in any shape or form, because they thought my dad had wasted his life doing that. But I always wanted to fight for what I believed in and to change the world. And I guess. With, when I came up with the first idea, because I'd never written anything properly, even in like newspapers, anything, and I wrote to loads of agents and they all rejected me. It's a it's a terrible story, but lots of people go through that. And a couple of agents got in touch to say, you know, we like this book. And this book, without going into detail, was a book about everything that had ever happened in the last hundred years. So it was a bit ambitious. My agent brought me in and said, Owen, I think that's more of a fourth book, um, which is like um, a great... That's frightening because you've only got one more to write and then you have to do it. It's like, all right, you promised. You promised this be my book. You promised. Uh, Yeah, so then I had to... I wanted to write about class, a book called Chavs, and um, that got rejected by everybody, including Penguin, my current publishers. Um, And then it just... At the end, I remember he emailed me, my agent, with A Chink of Light. That's what it was called. I remember that email. Because uh, then it got published, and then it just it did a lot better than everyone expected because of the worst possible reasons. Right wing Tory government came to power, oh, so the bad news is we get huge cuts and the destruction of millions of people's livelihoods. But you get a couple of whingy bucks out of it, don't you? So <laughs> that's exactly you know, it's like not, um, it's not all uh, like our charity. The day after the election, Arts Emergency got the biggest bounce of contributors, donations, volunteers that we've ever had. And so in some ways it was wonderful, but in other ways it was like, cool, we've cashed in on despair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. I used to have some stand-up about that, about how before the election someone said, oh, I think it'll be good if the Tories get in because there'll be lots of better art. Uh, and it was like, yeah, but I would rather have schools and hospitals yeah. <laughs> if we could choose. I'd like people not to have their social security removed. Yeah, I know. Mean. Oh, stop your communist agitating. Um, the uh, But this is... When did you know you wanted to be a writer? So you wanted to be an activist? Cause I, I, I don't reckon... really like writing. So what? So when you started... What was your first bit of writing? Because I remember I was about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a writer or, or a performer. And I, then I'd seen things like, you know, Rick Mail and Alexi Sale. And here was this way of being able to write your own stuff and do it on stage. So there was immediate access, unlike what you have to do. So you which started is... writing stand-up when you were about 12? Yeah, I, and Did I still you? use a lot of it. <laughs> it was very prescient about what I would be like when I'm an old man like I am now. <laughs> um, but I always, I just, you know, I was always keeping little notes and, yeah. and, and I knew I wanted to create something. And whereas you, the first thing then was you were saying your dad was a uh, political and political campaigner. Well, he was, he was a Trotskyist, you see. So I'm a, I'm a right wing shift compared to my parents because he was like, uh, they were involved. Uh, that's how they met my parents in the romantic setting of leafleting for Trotskyist revolutionary activity. And um, yeah, I mean, I loved writing as a kid, but I love writing fiction. I was wanting to write, I mean, someone would say I basically write fiction now. No, I mean, I, they, they, I wanted to write uh, stories. And the first thing I ever got published was when I was 10 which was in the esteemed Stockport and Tameside primary school poet collection book. And, um, yeah, pretty good. And everyone wrote all these kind of happy, nice poems, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote one about death and war. Uh, I used to write poems about, like, the... um, The Balkan conflict and the rainforest. Oh, wow. That's what I used to write about issues. I think it was probably, because it was... It was 1994, so probably... Yeah, it was probably a bit... The Balkan War stuff was probably on TV, but it was called My Last War. And it I remember it was, it was, it was so clever what I did because each one, each paragraph ended with, this is my last war, it is my last war. But then at the end, it's clear they've died. And then it ends with, that was 
my last war. And did they stop war after your poem? Yeah, that poem solved it. Do you remember in like before when a war ended? Do you oh, not remember yeah. that? Yeah, because that's because of Stockport and Tameside Primary School <laughs> oh. poem collection in my poem. And people read it all over the world. And you can just imagine, you know, all these war commanders sitting there and just reading the book and going... He was dead all along. <laughs> <laughs> Who you know, is this child-faced communist? No, he is a child now. Not as much of an insult as when we'll be using that in 17 years' time somehow to belittle him. I would really dearly love for once through the course of my lifetime something like that to happen. Like a child to discover the cure for something or a child to solve a maths puzzle that's been troubling everyone for millennia. You know, like just one occurrence. You know, I've got like another 40 years, hopefully, of living just once for something like that. That. Unusual to happen. Yeah, just a little kid going, oh, I've got the cure for all cancer. That'd be lovely, yeah. One day. Okay. Yeah, or okay, a perpetual motion machine made <laughs> yeah. by a four-year-old near the swings. So this is. So let's start off then with the... You bought a stack of books. What mm. were the things that you loved reading when you were a kid? What were the bits that... like? Well, now that you're writing, do you look back and think, oh, this is the book that I... That's what I used to imagine I might one day create after my war poetry era. <laughs> Um, no, it's weird because I still want to be. I'd love to write fiction. I loved. I loved. I mean, it was very different because I loved kind of fantasy and stuff when I was a kid and sci-fi and kind of escapism. I suppose I don't know. What I was escaping at the age of eight, living in Stockport. But um, uh, yeah, so I loved. I you know I kind of like you know dystopian stuff. And there was this author called Robert Heinlein who wrote this. Ah, you're nodding. You love Robert Heinlein. And yeah, I loved all that. And uh, the first book I ever properly read was when I was six. It was The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's because I lost the game of Monopoly and I was I was really gutted about it. So my mum gave me The Hobbit to read. And that, that was the first proper big kind of grown-up, in quotes, book I ever read. Um, but I loved all that and I love that. But I think now I probably prefer more realistic stuff. But it's interesting you mentioned Robert Heinlein because thinking politically, as far as... Because he wrote Stranger in a Strange Land. Republican, wasn't he? Well, not only Republican, but he was one of the science fiction writers that was brought in to try and help develop the Star Wars system, as in the uh, Strategic Defence Initiative. No way. So so there was Robert Heinlein. I can't remember the other science fiction writer because he was seen as being... Because Stranger in a Strange Land, and then after that, some of his work... is He also wrote the thing uh, that um, Starship Troopers is is based on. And all this. But uh, So he's a fascinating individual, but... this intriguing thing when amazing stories uh, Hugo Gernsback who, which is what the, the Hugos are named after famous, the, the, his idea was it's science fiction today science reality tomorrow and then in years to come there was Robert Heinlein going and if you've ever seen if you've ever seen the footage that's kind of the advertising footage to get this is what will happen when Russia launched their missiles this small th- and there's all of these lasers shooting out missiles from the oh sky this is and, and you keep going well this all seems like a lovely idea but all also, loads of nuclear bombs going off in the sky. Will there be some ramifications <laughs> for the climate or the world beneath it? But yeah, so, so that Heinlein fascinates me because he was a science fiction writer who also, um, you know, then got involved in in. Well, not because a lot of J.R. Tolkien, like his stuff, is actually really reactionary. It's about you know how great feudalism was basically. <laughs> and and then have you do you read Orson Scott Card? No, I know I should. I love that, and he's a he's a Mormon um, homophobe, basically. <laughs> Is that libel? No, he's opposed to gay rights. I would say that's homophobic. That's yeah. just fine, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah uh, so he's uh, yeah he's so yeah. You don't have to agree with the politics of the people that you're reading, but I've been thinking about that recently quite a lot because 
I feel like now more than ever, and I don't think this is a bad thing, but now more than ever, people are really aware of the private lives and political beliefs of people making art. Um, and now more than ever... Wikipedia, if, that's what. Yeah, but also, so say you know a contemporary writer and you find out that contemporary writer is very violent to people in their personal life, for example. Mm. You find that out in real time as it's happening almost and you'd immediately feel revulsed by that and you kind of would wrestle about whether or not you'd want to keep that up and then I think about during my degree the amount of writers that were just kind of trumpeted and you know canonical and you look at them and you're like oh they were an actual fascist that was kept in a cage were they <laughs> or like Edward Pound or they were like you know tortured their mentally ill wife and didn't visit them until they were dead Sally, in that kind of thing and I, I've just been sort of Wondering what effect that might have on future canons and whether or not, like, I can't say that I think it's a bad thing. And, yeah, and having that much access to them, you know, as they're writing, as they're living, being that much closer to them. And, I, I mean, I can't honestly say, therefore, I think we'll be deprived of good art, but it's interesting because you think, it then makes you think, like, are people who are good people worse artists or better artists? Should that even be a consideration? And... You know, I just find it interesting to think about. It's weird because of Twitter and stuff. Like, everything's become a kind of giant reality TV show <laughs> in the sense that we know all these kind of bizarre details about anyone, like mm. people who just, you know, like musicians, whoever, and their views on... Yeah, their views on stuff. I remember reading... You know when you find out there's some website which goes through the political views of Hollywood stars, and it went through, like, 25 <laughs> people who are conservative you would never expect, including B Buffy the Vampire Slayer... In real life, isn't that upsetting? Yeah, no, I really like right, Sabrina which? the Teenage Witch. Ah, I looked that up as well. No, but the thing is, up. also, I don't know necessarily what that means because when you're talking about American politics, I think the moment that you think that someone is kind because they appear to have the same politics as you, mm. then you're fucked. Yeah. Because actually, there's That's loads true. of things which the worst thing, the most, it's a bit like with Bertrand Russell, right? And uh, I've not read all his 96 books, <laughs> um, lagging behind a bit, but there was lots of things that he, he believed. For the population, but was not very good practically at putting, you know, doing yeah. himself. And there's and there's always that kind of issue. And also, what it actually means to be a Republican in America, it might be depend what state you're in. Because in some states, you might be a Democrat, but actually, that's more right wing than being an East Coast Republican. So I think there's all, you know, at the moment, at the moment you go, oh, Democrats good, Republicans bad. Of course, yeah. but that can I whistle the tune? <laughs> that's what can I whistle it? Well done. But. I would say on election night, you're allowed to pretend it's like a sports event and be like, bad luck, Republicans, just for the fun of it. Just for well, one I was just reading Marky Smith's book, <laughs> Renegade, which is great. Um, I think it's just a series. But, you know, when Marky Smith talks about voting conservative during the 80s oh and, you, and you wonder, you know, and he gives his kind of reasoning as, you know, this you know working class kid and whatever and what, why he did yes. it. And you are, what kind of wonder how much of it was actually uh, just a contrarian position of being Marky Smith. But... <laughs> I've never looked towards Marquis Smith to in any way be my moral compass. No. That's the thing that I find with a lot yeah. of people, mm. that if you do actually go, I this, I've invested too much. I, I think that's happened a little bit with sometimes Richard Dawkins, some of the people who are now really aggressive towards him. Yeah. I think it's because for a while they went, Richard Dawkins is the truth-sayer. I adore everything he says here. Oh, no, he said something I don't agree with. Burn Richard Dawkins. And so you have that bit where if you invest too much in any individual artist, science writer, whatever... Mm. And that's why we were both so devastated about Sabrina the Teenage Witch. 
<laughs> oh. She was... What about the cat? I on. bet the cat <laughs> doesn't even vote, but not because they're a nice anarchist, but because I can't be bothered finishing this. You can see where I was going. But I was used to find that was a great thing, that when you saw the lineup of celebrity supporters of the Conservatives, there was a mm. no point in which I'm going, oh, well, I'll have to get rid of their books and or <laughs> records and or work. It was always like, oh, yeah, I kind of presumed they probably would well, be. This is a, Yeah, but then that's sort of another joke to be like, oh, no, I'll have to throw away all my David Archer books, you know. That is the guy's name. Jeffrey Archer. Jeffrey, Jeffrey fucking... Archer. Yeah. I can't make any jokes today. Well done, though. Seriously, that, what, my that brain was is clever, terrible. Because what you went is, stupid I am so cultured that I don't even know the name of David or Duncan or Jeremy Archer. Well done, oh Josie. God, I'm sorry, clever. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, a lot of MPs, right? Nadine Doris is Bok. The Conservative MP Nino's, who I've met a few times, we get on really well. I'm very easily charmed. It's my number one <laughs> problem. And people, my friend tells me to stop knitting right wing people because I go, oh, but they're really nice. But Nadine, she wrote this book in it and it topped the charts. I would love to do an episode of this podcast where the three of us read. The poetry of Anne Widdicombe, the novels of Nadine Dorries and Louise Mensch, oh, and not, we just talk oh, about them, not in a political way, just pure literature. Can we? See, I like Louise Mensch in her work with Metallica. What, uh, by being married to their manager? Yeah, that's the closest I can get to enjoying her, her, her work. The, um... She threatened to come to one of my gigs in New York and I didn't dare do anything. John Ronson tweeted, JC Long's playing in New York, and she tweeted... Well, I might go. Does she let Tories in? And I couldn't bear replying to her because she's such a bully. Like, she bullied this lovely 17-year-old girl and, you know, it's very... She's just very rude. I worry about it because she's stopping an MP, which is fine, but then went to America and all she does is tweet bullying 17-year-olds. It's just a slightly odd thing to do in New York, isn't it? It's a career sidestep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this being an MP's really got in the way of my bullying. (laughs) Which one shall I go with? So, books, let's move on. So we, I, I've not read any of Louise Mensch's uh, books, so we can't talk about her. Yet. But, um, <laughs> Please, can we do an episode in future where we do do that? The literature of Tory okay. MPs. You're not really into it, are you? I, I'll give it a go. The Because uh, who was the other... There's uh, Who wrote the thrillers? And I didn't write the... Th- and I think wrote the thrillers under the name Robin Cook, but it wasn't Robin Cook. I don't know. Well, there that's was, harsh. Uh, Anyway, so let's move. First thing is then, who was you, you? You as a kid, what were the things oh, that really? Right. So I love. I really love this book. So this is the Alchemist Cat, book one of the Deptford Histories, by Robin Jarvis. Now the other day on Twitter, I remembered this because someone tweeted about Deptford, and I just said, "Oh, did you ever read the Deptford Histories when you were a kid?" Because I absolutely loved the Deptford Histories. And then five minutes later, Robin Jarvis, the author of the Alchemist Cat, tweeted going. Yes, well, I think I know one or two things about that, Owen. <gasps> it was so weird. Robin Jarvis That's the best just appeared. That's weird, isn't it? Just, you conjured him. It was like being in a fantasy where you just say Robin Jarvis and then he suddenly knocks on the door and goes, oh, hello. Uh, anyway, it was a great book um, set in London during... <gasps> Ooh. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this has Owen Jones and your address oh. written in in felt tip pen when you were a little child in the oh. start. Oh, my it been that word. It's quite a big book. <laughs> Owen, it's written... Oh, my handwriting's actually got worse since then. But it's, um, yeah, it's and it, I remember at the end, something happens with the Black Death and they and it kills the, one of the protagonists, which was terrible. Because it's set... That's it. Spoiler alert! It's, uh, I know, I ruined it. It's got these brilliant pictures. Look, witch doctors. So it's got witch doctors, plague... My friend, Great Fire London, it's got the works. I remember everything. seeing these at my friend's house when I first was at secondary school, my first friend, who's still my friend today. I went to her house and she had all of them, but I'd never read them. Yeah, they're life-changing. Um, 
They're not life changing, but they are. They could. And what age range are they good for kids? Because if there's anyone, a parent wanting to gift them to their. Oh, I see. I'd, do you know, I'm tempted to just read them all over again. Of um, course, this is obviously adults can read them. I would say, um, kind of. Eight to eleven, I would. Nice. Yeah, it. I would have thought my my son is nearly eight because <gasps> he's just he's done the Harry the third Harry Potter where you go. Well, I don't remember when I was a kid ever reading books that were three hundred pages or more. Yeah, but all his friends, they're so excited by that. But the, what I'm interested when you said that one of the lead characters is is killed in in that, yeah. where that moment you see the uh, emotional reaction by a child. Like for for my son, I haven't necessarily seen it in a book yet. But when he was about three, he was watching a, a Curious George film, mm-hmm. and they were going to try and close the museum. And he got all upset and he went, they'll never, they're never going to be... I said, don't worry, it's, it's a film. And I reckon, I reckon Curious George will be able to say, no, he'll never... So, and then he hasn't had emotional reactions for a while until this Saturday where Clara was... Uh, Are you giving about to do a spoiler to Harry Potter? Because I haven't no, read or seen No, it's not a spoiler to Harry Potter. It. It's a spoiler to this week's Doctor Who. Oh, oh. Okay. Right, and you should have read about it now, right? Uh, Clara dies. And oh I could see that he really? was uh, upset. I'm so behind. And, that was a real uh, shock. And also because we, we went to the Doctor Who Festival last weekend, which was such a lovely thing. So when you were mentioning science fiction, yeah. and I think one of the beautiful things that a lot of science fiction has for kids is when you are the uh, the slightly odd a child, uh, science fiction can really bring you together. Like there was a, a friend of mine whose kid has had, uh, it's not been, kind of didn't have good times early in school and then he really got into Doctor Who, loves Doctor Who, obsessively loves Doctor Who and he realised if the other kids didn't like Doctor Who then they were idiots <laughs> and then he found two other kids who did like Doctor Who and it's been this kind, you know, it is yeah. a, a, th- this giving you a slightly different world and giving you an imagination that is outside the kind of what you might consider to be the humdrum or the mundane. I think that science fiction can be, and for other people fancy as well, this really nice Pretend, I kept it very quiet that I read any science fiction books. No one knew. That would have been a badge of of, of, of shame, I think, in my school. Oh. I was just thinking that I used to read, when I was about 10, 11, point horror books. <gasps> I love Obsessed point horror. horror. Incredible. And also that demarcates us as a slightly different generation to people younger because younger people read Goosebumps books yeah. written oh. by the same man. Well, you graduate because Goosebumps is, is kind of like... Younger kids. Lighter horror. Because yeah. I remember we had um, a book club thing every month where we had to buy a book or something. Yeah. At school, did you write? Yeah, yeah. We had a box book. And we had Goosebumps. And I remember going to point horror and my... That was an escape. They look. I've got some horrendous. point horror that I've kind of kept aside for. Like, so I've not. I've not yeah, read me. But because I think the reason they brought those out was for my very elderly generation. <laughs> we read the adult pan book of horror stories, oh. and they would have in there. There would always be one story, which was "Take off your bra," she said furiously, <gasps> and there would always be just one story that had someone little bit popping cheeky. off the bra, and there would be some 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 nearly you know some nude scene, and so I think they probably went, yeah, we kind of need to find some horror that uh, is possibly, you know, less sexual and also less lurid. Um, yeah, because I remember some of the horror, I don't know if it was point horror, but there was this book in which an evil, some demonic woman person, and she fellates a priest and then kills him by ripping up his ribs one by one. I remember this as a teenager. Oh. I was like, I read it... That before... sounds amazing. Could you please tell me what it is? <laughs> yeah. But I read it too young. I read it when I was about 10 and I genuinely think it scarred me, actually. <laughs> like, it was genuinely like, quite... Well, just... this is how you seduce people. <laughs> rip their ribs off one by one. This is heterosexual sex. <laughs> I'm not getting involved. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what's in me, gay. Uh, so there we go. 
That is, but that is, I, I find that kind of it, the, the things that were banned because there were two horror books that my mum and dad had bought for me. I think one Christmas, and my gran read them first of all to check, and both of them I then never got. I'd seen them because I'd looked at the top of the wardrobe and I thought, brilliant, getting these two horror books with all skulls on the front and people in cows. Never got them. And the two books that I was banned from having when I went to the school bookshop and ordered uh, Billy Connolly's Gullible's Travels and yeah. Eric Idle's The Rutland Dirty Weekend book based on the Rutland Weekend uh, television yeah. thing. And uh, both of them apparently arrived at the bookshop and they went, I don't think that any boys should be allowed to have this Billy Connolly book. Oh, no. And uh, so those, in, ter- in terms of banned literature, was there anything that you had, you know, when you were a kid, there was banned. something that suddenly was taken off the shelf? No, if anything, I suffered from a lack of boundaries, an absolute lack of boundaries. When I went, my dad used to do a lot of travel. I don't know whether this is too bleak to say, actually, but my dad used to do a lot of travelling um, in Eastern Europe when I was a little kid. His job involved... I don't even know what his job involved. He's probably a spy, um, but um, it's before my parents broke up. So it was a real different world. But my, my dad used to travel a lot in um, Eastern Europe, and I remember I used to go into my parents' room, and on their shelves they had this book that was uh, about atrocities committed in the Second World War between uh, Serbs and Croats and it had photographs of people having their heads sawn off and I used to go in when my parents were out and like be like oh my and it was just I think it was because it was so terrible it was like it would be like now kids going on the internet and looking up like the worst thing they could think of but I used to sneak in and look at that oh the one that I had was They, my mum and dad had a book about the... Uh, it was either called The Great War, The First World War, I can't remember. And, and that had... I was obsessed. There was one close-up shot of trench foot. Oh, God. And it's this black and white, you know, of these kind of black, gnarled, swollen... Plastic, and I just kept going back. I was intrigued, fascinated and horrified by this, but it was the one image... That I, and I remember my dad saying, because he's still got um, uh, a lot of letters from uh, my granddad from the trenches and stuff like that. Wow. And, and it keeps coming up, the importance of going, uh, found some decent water today and fortunately have a pair of clean socks. And that's one of my bizarre obsessions that comes out of the was again something that's quite mundane about a fact about the Great War. But this thing, that this trench foot, this yeah. like the, here is something that... Um, I had, I remember, my dad ordered this book called Erotic Prose. <laughs> Uh, which naturally Sorry. attracted my attention. Can I say, though, that yeah. your dad is also of the generation, probably my age, but th- that generation where there were oh, things yeah. like uh, Van Rood and Van Food, which were yeah. sexy images involving glasses of wine. <laughs> so it would be a glass of wine that was exactly the same area as where uh, a woman's <laughs> pubic hair would be, and it would just cover up the genitals and pubic hair with wine. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> pot cauliflowers over the breasts, that kind of thing. I don't know if they did that shot, but there was a bit like, you Erotic know, Ronnie Barker's Book of Source. All of well, it, it was sorry. like a history of pornography, basically. Oh, it was like right. examples. And how do you know he ordered it? What do you mean he ordered because it? Because I remember he did, and it was weird, and I, he left it. It was just on the bookshelves, just there. Oh. It obviously attracted my keen attention, and that was about nine or something, so that's inappropriate, leaving mm. stuff like that lying around. And it was basically pornographic stories, but f- across the centuries, so there was like some 18th century. There was some 18th century uh, Hang story. On, this wasn't Fiona Pitt Kethley's literary companion to sex, was it? No, it was not. Was it was it one. I bet they also had that as well. They had a whole shelf of. That's weird got a really interesting. One, I think like... from uh, De Cameron or something like that. Anyway, it has a warning about what happens if you try and have sex with a, a dog. Because of the shape of that, look, it doesn't matter anyway. It's very hard to get it off. Never have I had more <laughs> illicit laughs than when me and my friend Julie, when I was 10 years old, 
broke into her dad's bedside cabinet and found the joy of sex. It was the best afternoon of our life, just <laughs> looking at the pictures, being like, oh, my God, and laughing and being like, none of this is real. It was great. Sorry, so then you, you read erotic, erotic prose. prose. Well, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, I just remember. You know, it was like very, like, 18th century, 17th century prose, and I remember them calling each other foxsters in the 17th century, and I just... I, it was just... It was, it was excellent early modern porn, which at the age of nine, <laughs> I uh, I had access to. None of your grubby modern porn <laughs> yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. That was my first, <laughs> my first, my first, uh, obviously, uh, uh, that was my first contact with anything sexual. So that's, that's <laughs> permanently distorted my view of sex. That and that horror book as well. That but I spoke about. On the plus side, the reason that I got, on the plus side, uh, uh, the reason I got into poetry, like reading about poetry, like writing poetry, all of that stuff, was because my mum had... Uh, like Sylvia Plath and then The New Poets, that book, and um, the those penguin collections of modern poets, she had a few of them. And I, you know, just thought very much of myself in terms of, like, being this very poetic individual. So she said, nick them and read them. So, you know, it's good. <laughs> it's good prose and poetry. Good to... so, so we've covered the books you enjoyed as a child, a collection <laughs> of erotic prose. Now... Uh, <laughs> The the other one that you've uh, got there is uh, I know this was I've never read this but the cover is so wonderful and it is if see if it, can you describe the cover and then of the, the listeners can horizon. work out well you've given it away now you oh, see this is oh uh, no the, sorry the that what is, you were yeah, saying I, I wanted to see how many people would remember it. this cover the um, it, Susan Cooper's The Dark Is Rising which again is part of it that, that's a trilogy isn't yeah, it yeah it's a trilogy it's a horrific front cover um, basically on it it's got uh, this creature, this weird creature, riding a what is that? Is it? What's he riding? Is that? It's not a horse, is it? Let's have a look. The uh, it's know. it's one of the uh, so yeah, it's kind of it's it's a creature that's a kind of it looks to me like an antlered owl on top of a <laughs> smear. It's quite Francis Bacon actually. It's like if Francis Bacon was given the job of going, Francis, by the way, in between doing popes and stuff, could you do a couple of children's books <laughs> illustrations? Of course I can. <laughs> when I finished in the colony rooms, smear horrible owl face. It's an owl, but the owl's got lovely full kissable lips. <laughs> wanna... And it's riding a horse, but you can't really see the head, so it also looks a little bit like it's riding a goat. Well, or a sideways rabbit. True. But True. this is so Susan it's, Cooper. Let's well, just... the thing is, I think a lot of kids, I don't know, I'm not going to say this about Susan Cooper because this is libelous if okay. I said it, but a lot of them obviously take a lot of drugs, don't they? Ha! Well, it's clear, isn't it? The stuff <laughs> they come up with. I, I mean, disagree. who I comes up with an owl, an antlered owl riding on a. Well, let's have a look at the illustration. But that's what you come up with if you don't worry about judgment too much. Mm. I mean, that's part of the problem. Again, that's what I love about science fiction and sometimes fantasy fiction, which is going, right, I'm going to come up with some really weird shit and I don't care. And someone go, oh, what a stupid load of old rubbish, but I'm going to do it. And it's the chutzpah, it's the, the, the you know, just going, mm. I'm going to create some things that other people might find preposterous. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe I mean, I, I like it. I, I, I've always that found that... That was a frightening that... one. I remember reading this during a thunderstorm once, and that was very atmospheric. Colour... Color... Like in um, The NeverEnding Story at the oh, beginning. Oh, yes! Because he does that, doesn't he? And that becomes real. Do you know what I was thinking of? And I am certain that it was a book first, and I haven't read the book. I've only seen the film. There was a film when I was a child that absolutely I adored and was thrilled and terrified by mm. called The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Yeah. Oh, Did you ever see that? Yeah. It was about these two girls and, and also... Joe Moondi- who wrote the book? Possibly. I haven't read it and I need to. There was mm. also... So there was a series called Moondial. Yeah. About a girl who 
went to stately home and travelled through time there. Did you ever see that? Right. Oh, it was incredible. And there was a film called Wolves of Willoughby Chase. And both of them involved people wearing capes that had a kind of fringy top part on. So that's why I associate the two. But both of them were the most terrifying <laughs> gothic shit for kids in a world. Well, this is great. This is. It's a horrible day, said Will, surprised by his own violence. It's creepy somehow. It's, I love that, surprised by his own violence. That is... Yeah, it'll be a bad night, said Mr Dawson. The walker is abroad and this night will be bad and tomorrow will be beyond imagining. It is Christmas! But Will is one of the old ones who must protect the world from the powers of darkness and evil magic and he has little time to think of presents. Ooh. Oh, that's good for a stormy night. It's very, it was very frightening. But what I got scared of most, I remember when I was a kid, where I had to leave the room. You you always had that, didn't you? Something mm. you just had to leave. It was so unbearably horrific. And one was the line the witch in the wardrobe when the, the ice queen turns up, because that is horrible. Is, is it the ice queen? Yeah. Yeah, the ice queen. But the other was uh, the yellow submarine, the cartoon version, of course, of, of the Beatles' um, <laughs> back album. It was the Blue Meanies. Do you remember the Blue Meanies in that? Yeah. They were chilling. They were absolutely horrific, and I genuinely still have nightmares mm. about it occasionally. You better come back. We've got Reese Shearsmith on this. We'll be talking about things that are chilling. Ooh. The uh, so you've also yep. got. Let's move on. Well, actually, while you're talking about things that are chilling, you've brought with you the collected short stories of Roald Dahl. And we briefly mentioned. I can't remember which one we mentioned a, a couple of it weeks was the, ago. This one was woman hot. eating. She fed them to the police. Oh, that's the the, the one about the shoulder of lamb. Yeah. yeah. This one, I think we all know this one. Uh, this guy, I can't remember what it's called, he turns up, though, to a... What's it called where everything's stuffed, all the animals are stuffed? Taxidermist. Yeah, yeah so he's at a taxidermist just having a having a little chat with him. <laughs> and uh, it becomes quite clear that something is rather, rather amiss and it all goes a bit dodgy. And then at the end, he's drinking the cup of tea. He doesn't go to a taxidermist. Doesn't he? No, what it I've is is wrong, uh, he arrives at a bed and breakfast. Oh, I've got this And uh, there's one that's still open. He goes, oh, goes, and he goes in and she's got all lovely animals. Mm. And then he starts to notice that the animals don't seem to move very much. And then he starts to remember a couple of people who were never seen again. And then eventually, uh, watch out, I'm going to, spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, eventually he kind of goes, oh, this tea has made me all sleepy. And she goes, good, love another friend. Oh, stuff you. Oh. That was it. Sorry, it was a fault. Because I remember reading this when I was very, when I was about, again, 11 or 12. And it was horrifying when I read it. I was so, so... What was it called? That is a really hard... It, I've just started trying to write uh, stories kind of similar to that for the, the Dead <gasps> Funny collection, the, like the yeah. collection of, of, of horror stories that there's going to be a volume two of soon. And that bit of working out how much information you should give yeah. and what gives away... Like the other day I actually did a live reading of the, uh, the story that I've just written for the new volume of it. And I, uh, and I eventually went, I went, oh, it's going on for ages. You, shall I just stop? And the woman went, no, 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 keep reading it. And I thought, I don't know if this twist is a twist because I know in my head already. Yeah. yeah. And that bit of then someone goes, actually, you've given, you haven't given enough information, or you've given too much information. But that, that, it, it's a, it's like a joke. It's a dark joke, isn't it? Because a joke, what it has to do at the end is it suddenly changes the reality and it turns it on its head. And the same way with Roald Dahl, over ten pages, fifteen pages, it's that moment where suddenly you go, oh. Now it turns out the world is this. Because you, because th- originally he was an adult writer, wasn't he? That was his big yeah. shtick. And, but they were always, a lot of them are very, very, and then obviously because he's better known as, because the, the children's books he do, he does are also quite grim and sinister, aren't yeah. they? It actually- 
actually just shocked a very... me. I didn't realise that he wrote for adults before children, but of, of course he did. Now I think about it, like of course because he did all the. Well, I'm not sure his, his very like first book, which I think was something like The Gremlins, or I can't remember the actual name, which I, I don't um, think is that's around a film, anymore. Robin. <laughs> the Gremlins, not Gremlins. Uh, keep up. The uh, go back and read one of your David Archer books. The, uh, um, but yeah, Roald Dahl, I think is he is one of those what I would call a gateway writer. If you didn't, because I didn't read his kids' stuff, but when I was about 13 or 14, I started to read the tales of the unexpected. Mm. And uh, yeah, that, that takes you into a world where nobody's happy and everyone dies. Um, huh. Well, that's cheerful, isn't it? Now, so, I wanted to talk... Go on. I'm sorry, do you mind? No, I'm very happy for you. I wanted to talk with you a little bit about... Um, because I can see you've got a couple of political books. And I think I'm not well enough read at all uh, in terms of politics. And I feel embarrassed about it, really. Oh, I'm not close enough to the mic. I was just saying how brilliant I am and how great everything is. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'm well enough read politically. And uh, what have you brought and why have you brought it in terms of politics? Right, so I brought with me... Um, <coughs> to be fair, it's difficult. A lot of political writing is rubbish. Now everyone's thinking, yes, you can speak, your books are terrible. But, no, I, I mean, that. it's difficult writing books. Uh, if you can, uh, Because the thing is about writing books for me is... You know, I, I believe that the way you get change is people organising together and mm. using their collective strength to change things. And individuals, they only have a very small role. And the danger of writing political books is people agree with you, read them. That's that's always the danger. For me, the test has always been trying to how you get a, get beyond that. But So what you're doing is when you write a book, for a lot of people, it's basically they, it's not going to change their opinion. You're merely giving them more armaments to use when they're caught in that exactly, discussion. Exactly, that, that helps, that helps. But I think, you know, for me, I've always tried to... I mean, you know, the first book I wrote was called Chavs, you know, rather than Class in Britain. Um, and, you know, so, so kind of trying to find populist hooks. But for me, I brought with me here Naomi Klein, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. And that's her latest book. And Naomi Klein, when I was a teenager... Um, an actual teenager on the looking like one. Um, it was it was a time when politically it was quite it was quite gloomy. It was very little, you know. It was it, if you, if you were someone who believed in alternatives to free market capitalism, then there was very little out there. And she was like this light. I remember because the logo like, was amazing. Exactly. So that was for me a big impact. And that was at the time of the uh, the. Uh, do you remember the anti globalization or count, mm-hmm. counter? I can't remember what they called it. Alter globalization. Um, Protests and it was weird because these were escalating, um, and she was one of the spokespeople really for it, or became unofficially a spokesperson for that movement. But then nine eleven happened, and it completely blew. I mean, the, the, you know, what was the that movement evolved into the anti war movement to a degree, mm-hmm. but we, people often forget about that whole kind of weird nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and one where you got this gathering movement, and this space opened, and Naomi Klein was one of those few voices. So for me, it was like a she was like a life draft because. It was so difficult to find anything which was, you know, could could actually challenge the status quo. And she does, I think she reached people. I think things like No Logo reached not just, you know, people. Well, and also, like, the shock doctrine, which yeah. I haven't read, but I get the gist of. That was, like, <laughs> that was one of the it's jokes so in my, I did a show the other year where I was like, it's like the shock doctrine, which I haven't read, but I completely understand. <laughs> um, there but, is a great thing you can get on, like, the, those Kindle books now where you can buy, they're about six quid awesome. each, but it is a 24-page pricey <laughs> of various different books. Oh, you can go, there we go, now I look well read. I remember when yeah. I was at school, there was a girl who brought in a thing that said how to bluff your way at being well read and yeah. I could not have been more disgusted I was like <laughs> why this is so tacky Ugh. and now I'm like oh yes please no I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> but um, in the shock doctrine uh, 
so the director, uh, is it Alfonso Cuarez who directed uh, Children of Men? Yeah. Which I'm a bit obsessed with. I was looking at Alfonso Cuarez's uh, IMDb page. Was and Quaron. Quaron. Oh, yeah, Quaron. Oh, God, yeah. I'm so stupid. It's, don't be sorry, you're not stupid. It's a memory thing. I know. Stupidity is not not being able, oh, I can't remember a name. You must be an idiot well, then. Well, it's according to people who bait you on the internet. Um, but um, uh, You've spelt a thing a bit wrong. How can but, you believe in it if you don't know how to spell it? Alf- Et cetera. <laughs> Alfonso Quaron. Like the guy who directed Children of Men, he also directed a documentary about the shock doctrine and you can really see its influences in Children of Men, you know, especially, I was talking about this the other week, about red zones and green zones. There's a bit in it where they go through into the green zone and it's this posh park where everyone's got pet zebras and stuff like that. <laughs> and um, I think to to back, basically it's a long way of backing you up basically because the sh- the shock doctrine is so embedded in popular culture in loads of ways as is no logo I think these things have had like profound resonant cultural yeah, effects. The shock doctrine is weird because I read it in two thousand and seven and it was only after what happened in the financial crash it became so obvious because the whole idea of the shock doctrine for those who haven't read it it's very simple which is basically a crisis happens and then the people who support free markets doing what the hell they want use that crisis to their own advantage to it's push the same with up. 9-11 isn't it it's yeah. like you were saying the, the movement was rising up and then 9-11 happens and everyone exploits that to start this never-ending war on terror and as a result the other things are kind of suppressed and crushed well, well the shock doctrine part of I think the revelation in it for some, you know, for those who might have read Children of the Matrix by David Icke I went back to that again the other day I'm still not getting too far through it but <laughs> that, this idea of going ha 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 we're the Illuminati and we've got a plan to start a war. It's actually more, oh, bloody hell, brilliant. Look, over there, everything's yeah. falling apart. We can make loads of money mm-hmm. out of that. So mm-hmm. it's, it yeah. does actually remove that, you know, as someone said before, you know, this idea that everything is being carefully calculated is in some ways at least gives you a security of paranoia. Yeah. The fact that you go, so things kind of go tits up, things are badly planned and they go awry, and then there is a way uh, that the jackals can feast on it. Exactly, exactly. So it's not this evil conspiracy where people are there, you know, behind closed doors plotting, you know, like those conspiracy theories believe that 9-11 was somehow some inside job, all that kind of uh, gibberish. No, instead it's more, you know, this is what Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama's former chief of staff, said, you never let a crisis go to waste. And he said, and what I mean by that is an opportunity to do what you always wanted to do but didn't think was otherwise possible. And that that's what, that's what happened, you know, with, you know, the financial crash, I remember... Back in 2008, and people like us, well, we thought, well, look, they've discredited themselves. They're finished. There's no possible way they can recover from this. And yet they used it as an opportunity to push even more extreme versions of the sorts of policies that had led to the collapse in the first place, mm. which was a bit annoying in hindsight. If anything, it has been a little bit annoying. <laughs> Ooh. So, um, and this changes everything. Oh, yeah. I wonder how many other people like me have gone, I know that's really important but I think it's going to upset me so much I can't bear to read it. Well, that's, <laughs> that's why I, I, I did a talk with him about this, uh, with The Guardian, about this book. And that was... The, the, the problem with climate change is all of us, I would imagine here, think, well, that's really, really important. It's an existential threat to humanity and the world. But it is also quite boring, isn't it? it, it, it to a lot of people, it seems kind of long-term and abstract. And I always think oh, that's really important, someone should sort that out, almost, rather than being able to... You know, if I saw a climate change documentary on television, 
I'm not convinced 100% I'd keep watching it. I think my reaction is the opposite. I think it fills me with such sadness and such dread and such a sense of impotence and, you know, frustration that they're... That even the other day I made a joke about climate change. No, no, no. I think it's just different reactions to the same thing. But I saw... I made a joke about climate change deniers on Twitter the other day and I had 50 people being like, you, like, different. Oh, that's what... I mean, that's what we were talking about this beforehand. It's one of those subjects... This is part of the reason I think people don't want to go into it, is the moment you have any position, however loose, whatever it's backed up with, then people will, well, I can't, I can't even believe that you believe this. What, what an idiot. And people, because it has that grand conspiracy theory thing, which people merely by not agreeing with the scientific consensus mm. go, and therefore I must be very clever. It's a bit like, you know, some people think merely the act of being an atheist means that, and because I don't believe in God, I'm a lot wiser than that Anglican over there. <laughs> and the two things are not necessarily wedded. And I think that I had a, a very long, it wasn't even an argument. I was just trying to be helpful where I sent a little link to someone about climate change they then got all angry about it and then when it got down to it that way where argument ends I don't know if you the internet argument where someone basically does a a go right okay so why do you believe this well great minds and the East Anglia climate change emails actually and I go okay who are the great minds oh you'd like me to tell you wouldn't you well, yeah, you're arguing. This is your argument. Oh, make it easy for you. No, look, arguing is not me deciding what your argument is and then going, oh, I've lost because I've decided what well, your they, argument they're is. They're the worst, the pub balls, because oh, they're the pub ball trolls. And they always are like, well, that's because you've lost the argument. The worst ones, by the way. Cause... No, the worst ones are anyone who then goes, I'm going to end by putting a thing in Latin. And if you don't know Latin, <laughs> I win. <laughs> or the worst ones are trolls who just send you random abuse and then you block them because life's too short. Yeah. And then... A, they think, ah, I got to them. And you know that because they start tweeting about you and everyone else starts bringing, you know, you pile in on it. Or they go, oh, doesn't believe in free speech. And I hate this more than anything because it's like if I walked off from you now, it might be a bit rude because we're doing a podcast, but it's not attacking your freedom of speech. If I hang up the phone on someone going and abusing me, that's not attacking. And they always do this. It's like you can abuse me all you want. It's just I don't necessarily have to listen to it. But go and they all. You can still shout in the bandstand, but I'm walking out the park. I'm not saying you have to stop shouting in the bandstand. Keep going. Do you ever get the ones as well who they kind of pick a fight with a question? And then you don't answer it within 20 minutes and they go, oh, refusing to answer my question. Yeah, yeah. And they won't let it go. And then, and then they yeah. say, like, I had somebody start this argument and then I said, I, they said, I know you don't want to talk about this, but please, can you provide evidence to this, that, the other? And I said, you're right, I don't want to talk about it, so thanks. Oh, yeah. And then they were like, what, just answer these seven questions. And I was like... Okay, what you're doing is you're pretending that if I don't fight this fight with you, that I'm wrong. But I'm saying I have no energy to fight this fight with you because you're a loser. Um, but um, no, no. Just, These are things uh, we shouldn't be doing book. because we should be reading books. Yes. These are. We're, so we're talking but about. Twitter's ruining that, hasn't it? People don't just sit and the the things that increasing with social media destroy are reading books and staring idly out the window to kind of think things That's through. That's why you life. need to be uh, on trains a lot where the reception's yeah, too sketchy. Yeah. And um, you just have to... And also, what I like to do is run my phone battery down, really go at it very hard, run it down by about 1pm, got the rest of the day to myself. Or People that like, other oh, one you do on trains, you. just drop it down the toilet <laughs> and then get me to mend it. I did oh, do that. I had to he take it all kind. the little bits out really? and I had to dry yeah, them with a little ago. bit of just put it in rice. We, didn't, we were on the train. We oh, were, yeah. You didn't have any rice yeah. available on, no, on the East Coast train line. That's one of, that's privatisation for you. Oh, Can't even get rice on trains. <laughs> so, um, Naomi Klein, yeah. this is... Now, what... Because this is a problem, I think, is 
also people feel that they get lost in a sea of information. Climate mm. change again is a good example of something where you put up something and then someone goes, obviously you haven't read this paper. And then therefore the argument becomes, you go, oh, well, I don't know that. So I don't know everything and yeah. therefore I can hold no position at all. So when choosing a good... I mean, one of the things that I always think is if I'm going to get a political book, historical book, whatever, I'd check that it has footnotes and references. Because if it doesn't, you know, I've read a few books where... Well, I read one of Melanie Phillips, not all of it, uh, the London East Stone one, and I thought, this doesn't seem to have many references. It goes, as we all know, and this is a truth, and this stuff, and you go, well, is this true? I don't know. Whereas... So, for instance, Naomi Klein, why would a book of hers be better than, say, Melanie Phillips' London is done? Well, obviously, Melanie Phillips is a far more riveting and incisive, thoughtful writer than... Do you know what's weird about her? She started off, didn't she, as a kind of liberally lefty type. She was the social affairs correspondent of The Guardian. Yeah. So we can all see where I'm going to be heading. Um, Speaking of which, I really um, was but... thrilled to tweet the other day because everyone's been writing these articles like, why I've left the Labour Party by a privileged oh, journalist. Yeah. And so I tweeted that I've just joined the Labour Party and so it's one in, one out for yeah. occasional contributors to The Guardian at the moment. <laughs> it's so true. But yeah, this book, I mean, the thing about Naomi Klein is, yeah, it's very well researched and backed. She's very, you know, she's a she's a, a big epic researcher. But she makes it, she's readable. She's very, very readable. You know, she'll... She'll write off in a quite in a conversational way. She's got, you know, random literary references and she's got here talking about a BBC production of Pride and Prejudice to make a point. You know, she's very she's very um she's just a very clever, thoughtful writer and very accessible. I did this talk with her and it was weird because she was quite nervous beforehand, which I didn't expect with Naomi Klein. It's because actually she she's desperate to get things right. She's really kind of obsessive with with not screwing up, particularly because this is an issue she thinks is very important. And the point she was making is she'd neglected it as an issue, but she felt actually, A, this is an existential threat to humanity, which I suppose makes it a bit of a priority. But the other thing is, is, is she was trying to point out it's an opportunity to change the way we live and also create you know, the jobs of the future. You know, We mm. managed to trash so many skilled jobs in this country, and this actually is a way of creating renewable energy. So she's very practical, and this is what it's about. It's about you know, how can we, rather than your reaction exactly, which we, people who care rather than uh, my awful reaction, is, <laughs> is, is this is too miserable and awful. But she's saying, no, 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 no. There's reasons to be optimistic and actually we can make the world better as well as taking on climate change. So it's fine. You, you'll be fine if you read it. Well, that sounds like my cup of tea. It yeah. really does. How funny. If only they'd had a picture of like someone like jumping up and down at the start <laughs> of it with a green background, I'd have been like, oh, this looks lovely. Well, like a hologram. So but you turn it and the person's jumping up and down. But it's true. Like I, I was thinking about how um, in uh, some countries have taken the ball of renewables and thinking in the in terms of the future and they've run with it so well like there are some countries that are just doing so wonderfully well with adjusting the way their economy works and stuff like that yeah well it's well, like because they don't go oh you know the market will decide everything like we do instead they go well the market probably won't sort it out so we should probably do something and then make some plans yeah <laughs> Better, better get this sorted, this one. Well, I was going to throw in another, uh, because we, I thought we probably mentioned political books, so I bought a few for my shelf. Arundhati Roy. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you've read any of her work. She's, of course, she's of course most famous for doing, you know, fiction, a, a, a novel. But her political writing, a lot of it which is about things like dam building in India and, and mm. other, other issues, and, and some of which is also then about the general nature of world politics. But she just writes so beautifully because she, you know, was her most famous work. You know, there can never be a single story. There are only ways of seeing. 
nationalism of one kind or another was the cause of most of the genocide of the 20th century. Anti it's just like the, the way that she... Uh, there is, however, a brighter side to the amount of energy and money that the establishment pours into the business of managing public opinion. It suggests a very real fear of public opinion. It suggests a persistent and valid worry that if people were to discover and fully comprehend the real nature of the things that are done in their name, they might act upon that knowledge. Very good. And she's got, Aaron, good. That, that's from The Ordinary Person's Guide to Empire. Have you ever read any of her work? No, which is a massive omission, really, isn't it? Because she's generally considered to be A, very, very good, and B... Very, very important. So I'm a brilliant talker as well. She is. My I, excuse I, is flimsy. I can't remember who was presented a uh, that was 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 questioning her. But you know when I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you interview someone and then you suddenly go, I've become overly excited and in <laughs> awe and I'm really fucking this up. But there was a lovely bit where the, the I can't remember who was all, but you could see a moment where went, I'm with Aaron Darty Roy, <laughs> and everyone's looking at me here at the South Bank. But yeah, Aaron Darty Roy. I just wanted to mention her because, uh, and I think the Ordinary Person's Guide to Empire is is a very good um, starting point in in her work. I'm reading a great thriller called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Well, we're not doing thrillers. We're doing political stuff yes, now. But it is political. Well, it's about political. conspiracy theorists. And it's about three people who stumble upon a global secret shadowy cabal. And that's as far as I've got. But I'm loving it. It's a great page turner and he has a brilliant turn of phrase. Um, what are you using as your bookmark, by the way? I'm always fascinated by uh, bookmarks. This is uh, Hiking with Pets. That is fantastic. <laughs> you are using from your American trip, South Falls Day Use Area. So you, as well as reading a book, you've been reading Hiking with Pets and using it as your bookmark. Yeah. You also have some John Pilger there, Hidden Agendas. Oh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, John Pilger, I mean, I guess... I mean, I don't think I've read his stuff for the last few years, I'll, I'll be brutally honest, but this book was, I think, the reason I brought this along... Uh, and the reason I thought it was quite eye-opening was that um, if you're a writer, you're working in a media, which is a bit problematic because the media is not like this fountain of, of objective truth and reality about the world in which we live and it's just informing us and all the rest of it. It's actually a very politicised entity. It's a much of the press in this country. You know, they call it the free press because it's not run by the government. Mm. But, you know, we're not North Korea. Fine, not a very ambitious place to start, I'll be honest with you. But instead, it's run by a very small group of, of, of media moguls with a big Who happen agenda. to agree with the government a lot. Yeah, and just <laughs> things being as they currently are and making things more unequal. Yeah, so they're, yeah, I mean, they, they're, they're vested interests and they use their press as a political lobbying tool. And that's why, you know, we end up in a country where, you know, on average, people think 27% of... Benefits is lost to fraud. It's only 0.7% according to the government. They think there are 20 times more teenage pregnancies than there are, much higher immigration. We could go on. And that's partly because the media doesn't inform and educate people. And I suppose what John Pilger did here, and, you know, he's, he's controversial in, in, in lots of ways, I suppose, as a writer, but he challenged this kind of sense of this is a politicised press and it misinforms people about foreign policy issues where it often just echoes the government line uh, down to a T. Um, and anyone who criticises it, they'll, you know, gets attacked. And the same on, on domestic stuff. And I always found this interesting because, you know, if you're someone who believes in a more equal society, they always find a way of attacking you and make it about you as a person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're if you're too poor, they accuse you of envy. If you're too rich, they call you a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. If you're too young, uh, they accuse you of being naive. And if you're too old, they call you a dinosaur. So you literally cannot win. And they always either ignore or demonise or humiliate anyone who opposes the, the status quo. Um, which they do all the time. So I just think he's he's a counterweight, people like that. You know, they it's uh, for me, it was, it, as a kid, it was so useful because it made me realise there's massive problems with the press in 
I guess that's partly what I'm trying to... It would be so useful. Like, when I was sort of 15, 16, I had, like, very, um, like, no real politics when I was a teenager at all, and I was just a bit like, yeah, the man, or whatever. Like, yeah. I like grunge and I don't like brands. You know, that was about as much as I got. And it would be so useful uh, as a younger person now to be given sort of three or four books that were, like, a grounding in media studies and politics just in terms of learning to read uh the media and learning to understand about framing or yeah. about um, agendas or well, I mean Nick Davis's Flat Earth News is a very good kind of starting point isn't it for just uh, I think reading about the, the nature of the press well what's interesting there in that book was because you know obviously the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the Daily Mail weirdly people thought this is so bizarre the Daily Mail was campaigning most passionately about bringing the killers to justice yeah, and people couldn't work out why and this is why because Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, realised that the father, Neville Lawrence, was his plasterer. Huh. Isn't that incredible? Huh. And that's why, that's what made him push it in the way he did. Well, that's why, again, the most powerful thing is actually, you know, meeting the people that you've been told you must presume are your enemy or your... Uh, when you humanise stuff. Know. Yeah. Well, this is what, what, interesting because John Pilger also wrote Heroes and then more recently things like New Rules of the World. Mm. And in the 70s, he was a Daily Mail columnist. He was he was primetime ITV mm. when a new John Pilger documentary came out, nine in the evening, in one of his most famous Cambodia, Year Zero. Uh, now... He seems to be someone where if you... Oh, John Pilger is a little bit nuts. Even Noam Chomsky now. Noam Chomsky, who, whether you agree or disagree with him, and the, I'm sure there are things you will find that you, you wouldn't agree with him, but he's reasonably thorough. That's, that's, the, that's the very least, I think, you could say about Noam yeah. Chomsky. And now, figures like Pilger and Chomsky seem to be, almost by bringing them up, people go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't think you can use them in an argument. And what do you think's happened? What do you think is that change from, from prime time to... I mean, I disagree on things like Julian Assange, because I, 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 I just thought he should go to Sweden and face the allegations made against him. And there's stuff like that, although if you want to bring that up on Twitter, write an article about it, you will be called an MI5 spy uh, for uh, about four weeks with no, um, with no let-up, as I discovered. It's actually Moss had a work for anyway, so get it right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I guess... I guess the thing is, it's important to be, have a critique of Western foreign policy, but the danger is you end up indulging anything which might show that there's a problem with Western foreign policy and, you know, and always presume the worst about everything. And that sometimes isn't true, I guess. I also think that you can't, like we were saying earlier, you can't rely on somebody to be your saviour and your hero for their whole life. Yeah. Like, if, you know, somebody can be really, really on point when they're younger. Like I've seen it with uh, comedians, not you, but, you know, some comedians, uh, they start out and they're so fucking right on and brilliant and then they get to be older men mm. and they don't appreciate that they've lived a certain life of privilege yeah. and then they end up kind of attacking younger women or just having these sarcastic snarky opinions about kind of politics that aren't there's no way to talk about ben elton <laughs> but but i think it's the same with you know somebody may well be a firebrand or be wonderful in their politics and their writing but you can't be too hard on them if when they're 70 they go off the rails that's true bit, and also you? sometimes i don't know if you find this like well what i sometimes do because i have to write obviously opinions on lots of things and You'll get people who follow and they'll agree with you on this issue, but not on some other issue. And they go, can you please stop writing about that? Because they want you to be this tailor-made, like, <laughs> polemicist for them and their opinions. So rather than saying they disagree, they're like, they just say, don't ever write about this ever again and just stick to this instead. 
Um, and you can't really do that. Or people, I get this, people complain about me tweeting about something and they'll, they'll, they'll say, uh, oh, I'm bored of this now. And it's like, I, I'm not a tailor-made service for you. I'm sorry, I can't. And I think it's the same with some of these people is, you know, you can agree with them on certain issues and probably not on everything. Someone we haven't got round to because we're nearly at the end now. Have you ever any Howard Zinn? Yeah, Howard See, Zinn. I like Howard Zinn. He died a few years uh, ago, didn't he? Died, died about, yeah, probably four years ago. And I remember and engaging in a very long and bizarre, you know, again, one of those times on the internet where I didn't realise this is absolutely pointless. There was a, a right-wing site that rejoiced in his death for being an anti-American. Oh but whereas, God. of course, he is, you know, one thing is he's pro-people. He's actually, this is that strange mix of, mm. and, and I have, this is a collection of his uh, essays called Passionate Declarations. He was one of those writers that when I, he, he wrote a wonderful book uh, which is in a lot of American schools, the People's History of the United States of America, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is the history of, well, it, it's history from the perspective of the people, not mm -hmm. from the generals and the and and he I've always found fascinating uh, in the way. And he also I remember talking to various people who me, oh, old oh, Zany's in, he's mad, he's mad. But I found what he what he believed in, and certainly what was behind. Like there's a lovely story of when when he wrote about Columbus, um, yeah. and uh, I can't remember which exactly. Uh, I can't remember whether it was bringing venereal disease or whatever it was that was brought to uh, America at that point. And someone went, oh, well, where did you get this idea from then? How, how, do you, how do you know about this? You just made it up. And he went, it was in Columbus's diaries. <laughs> and that's kind of a nice thing to be able to, I shall show you the sources. But I found Howard Zinn was someone who perhaps changed my, you know, view or opened. Yeah, I mean, that's why they didn't like, because in America, there's just, I mean, you always get this, don't you? Whereby if you don't, if you want to improve your country and rid it of injustice, then you hate your country. Huh. And that's that's what they... You know, what's more patriotic than wanting to rid your country of injustice yeah, yeah. And, and make it work for the majority rather than a small elite? But no, that's treachery. That's, that means you're a traitor and you're not patriotic. And that's why people attack the likes of Howard Zinn, because what he was trying to do was challenge the official narrative of America... Um, and actually paint on the canvas people who get airbrushed out of it. You know, yeah. that we that things are won often at great cost by people organising. Like, you know, the suffragettes, there's a film about, you know, they're now Hollywood box office material, mm. uh, and we lord them, they're saints. But in their time, they were hated and they were demonised and reviled. Well, even the um, suffragettes film as well is so whitewashed and airbrushed as well. It's, well, I, uh, neither have I, but it's very... Um, <laughs> Hang it's, on. It's faced it turns out you haven't, you've been making it all up now for 15 years. I thought, I've never seen anything. I'll just <laughs> show up and I just do paint on my best smile. But um, there's been a lot of criticism of the suffragette film because it's only white women and it doesn't uh, was, was talk about any of the minorities. And that's what we should do, paint on. That's what people like Howard Zinn tried to do. And it's, again, it is a patriotic history because you're telling the struggles of people mm. who fought at great cost for the rights and freedoms we have today. And that should remind us to defend them. But And that's what I feel particularly deprived of in the United Kingdom in terms of... I actually did a module about people's popular process, protest in my history A-level, but I feel, in general, all and what Michael Gove has done is really bring history back to kings and queens. Queens, you know, yeah. and they don't fund the People's History Museum in Manchester enough and mm -hmm. they're building the Thatcher Centre, although that's a private enterprise, as she would have wanted. Um, but uh, I, I think we have a real problem with not letting people know about their own history. Well, this is in how, a, how would in a positive way from exactly. this essay on Machiavellian realism and US foreign policy. Our Machiavellis, our presidential advisers, our assistants for national security, and our secretaries of state insist that they serve the national interest, national security, and national defense. These phrases put everyone in the country under one enormous blanket, camouflaging the difference between the interests of those who run the government and the interest of the average citizen. 
So, Amen. Howard's in, I highly recommend. We haven't got to Richard Holloway, who is my favourite former Bishop of what Edinburgh. And we're gonna, no, that's exactly what we've, we're going to oh. we're going to skip from. I've got a Dennis Potter book we're never going to get to, and I've got a couple of Richard Holloway, and I love Richard Holloway. Well, why is, do we do that if you want to do? No, that? because we have a podcast every week, and you are the guest, oh, and see. because you have two books which I, I... think are probably quite different in one <laughs> way. But let's find out how much the same they are. What? And Answer in the Eagles by William May. No, uh, book about a small boy being kidnapped by an eagle and Alan Hollinghurst, The Line of Beauty. <laughs> a uh, book about... eagle kidnappings are in there? <laughs> uh, well, actually, that's how it starts as well. Uh, no, this is a story, uh, Alan Hollinghurst, The Line of Beauty. I found this funny because I read this years ago and I, it took me... I didn't, I, I was late coming out to my parents he's, he's gay and obviously this is about gay men in the 1980s and um, she bought me this... For Christmas, and I did think a little, and she, I did think she sat there thinking, now I've got a gay son. Oh. I suppose I should buy him a book about the gays. I'll get him some of his gay stuff that he loves. <laughs> Very sweet. Oh, there was a lovely thing. Grace um, Petrie, our, our uh, fabulous friend and singer, uh, last night we were doing a, uh, a discussion with Alan Moore and Nathaniel Medcalf as well, and she was talking about the moment once her parents knew that she was a lesbian. They went, oh, well, I'll tell you what, let's get her the uh, scantily clad girls allowed calendar. <laughs> and she said it was one of the. Um, we thought you'd like this. <laughs> I hope we've made the right gesture. <laughs> this is a bit weird. Uh, that is weird, but also amazing. Yeah, this book is its incredibly written. It's pretty bleak, I'll be honest with you. I suppose a book featuring the HIV pandemic of the 1980s is never going to be a, a springy, cheerful uh, read. But, yeah, and what is incredible about it is it's set in, in conservative circles. And it's not like it doesn't condemn them or anything. It just, you know, they're kind of... It's ha- they, they're hanged by their own behaviour. You know, it's not a judgmental book. It's not a political polemic. But it is about the kind of, you know, the Austin, you know, the, the debauchery. And because this isn't, you know, a story about the 80s of people who were unemployed or anything like that. These are people, these were about the winners, the victors. Mm. And, you know, they, they have this, you know, they're all taking drugs and living in luxury and all the rest of it. Uh, but then, obviously, the HIV pandemic turns up and it goes horribly wrong. Uh, but it's about a lodger who outstays his welcome, basically. So and it's the tiger who came to tea. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've never read that. It won't you take will you long. live when you're a little kid. Yeah, no, no I was too busy reading erotic prose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Up to uh, the 19th century. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was just... Cover the table, ladies. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read Eleanor Hollinghurst? I no, haven't. I haven't. It's a, this is... We're straight, so we don't read any of that. I've no, never I'm... read it nor pretended to read it. She's not read it and probably pretended in <laughs> some don't... of her Bloomsbury literary circles. <laughs> no, I never pretend that I've read things. I, that's why I just end up going, I've not read it. But um, I used to live with a friend of mine who's just so incredibly well read. And I was around him while he was reading it, so I feel as if I've read a little bit of <laughs> it. Homeopathic uh, reading of the memory um, of Hollywood. I was next door to his library for a long time. But it's really good. It's, it, it's just... I found it a quite a chilling read. And it is all about... I don't know, it's kind of weaves in. It's got race, it's got drugs, it's got, obviously, homosexuality, it's got, you know, betrayal. It's really good, and it, it did make me think to myself... I mean, I was born in 1984, so the, the 80s kind mm. of passed me by, and I'm so relieved. I just read this and thought, ugh, that decade, what a write-off. 
But then I think there's so many parallels to now, you know, especially in terms of yuppies. Well, I don't want to be reminded of it, of the horror. But at least in the 80s, we had adventure playgrounds and murals. That's true. (laughs) I'll bring in next week my ID's Book of the 80s Encyclopedia. It's quite an eye-opener. Can I say, if anyone listening could point me to a good book about the peace murals and workers' murals that were so popular and common in the very late 70s and early 80s, uh, if anyone has a book about that around the UK, I would love it. And also, if anyone can point me to any sort of research or reading that I can read about adventure playgrounds, because I've been really... I just can't get it out of my craw thinking about city farms, adventure playgrounds and murals as these epitomes of my favourite things about the 80s and cities. And was that an 80s thing, city farms? Mm-hmm. City farms. Well, it wasn't all bad then, was it? Was, you know, I'm serious, city farms, adventure playgrounds, murals. It was a lot of community activism. You know, look at the reopening of London Fields Lido yeah. and the the campaign to keep open Teeting Bet Lido. There was a lot of kind of community ownership of these fun, brilliant things. Anyway. Well, the final book, which we have, is uh, the uh, Ant- Antar and the Eagles, and I like it immediately just from the... Uh, it's by William Maine. The idea of becoming a writer came to William Maine as a boy. When travelling on the bus in Hull, the townway is brought up. One day, he says, they gave me my ticket and I looked at it and it dawned me that someone somewhere composed the words issued subject to the bylaws of the East Riding Road Car Company and that it had been printed. And I thought... I could be that person. Ha! I like you, William Maine. I'm going to read Antar and the Eagles. And it is, according to the Times, on The Observer, a dazzling book. So... I um, would also like to uh, follow up from an earlier podcast I was talking about, the book I was reading, which was called The Tragic Short Life of Robert Peace. And I finished it. It was so interesting reading about, and it's about different people from different class backgrounds' reaction to elite education. And obviously it was mad, right up my street. But I would recommend it just for that. It gives, it gives you lots of different perspectives on how hard it is to change your class and what that means. Class. So interesting. Class. Should always be said in a northern accent. <laughs> Thank you very that's... much. That's enough now. We've overrun. Thank you very much, Josie oh, yeah. Long. Thank you very much, uh, Owen Jones. I know you've got to go for a jog now. Yeah. And uh, I Thank hope you very that much, uh, many of our, our listeners now know the Christmas gift they can get for any child-faced Leninist in their family. <laughs> thanks, Owen. No worries. Thanks. Thanks very much for listening and do go to uh, the cosmicgenome.com site where you will find a reading list now put up there as well as links to all of the other podcasts that we've recently done. Thank you as well to just a few of our patrons. We will try and thank you all over the next few weeks, but thank you very much to Kenton Sumner, to Eleanor Anstruther, to Mike Lamb, to Aid Bradley, to Geraldine Byers, to Joris Gillette, or Gillette, I apologise, or Gillet. Uh, I've given you all three choices. Please edit it in your own mind. It's the one that's nearest to being correct. Adam Taylor... Bill Nugent, Jem Bullimore, Dominic Wilson, James, just James, and Neil Davis, Ricky, just Ricky, Steve, Dave Watts, and King Dog UK. If you would like to support our podcast, just go to patreon.com and you will find there, look under my name, Robin Ince, and this is where we're trying to fund this podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your money, or your not money if you have none. You need to give nothing to hear this. Bye. <laughs>